We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, and my co-host, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Today, we're speaking with author William Bloom. William was working at the U.S. State Department when he quit in 1967 in opposition to the U.S. war in Vietnam. Thus began his long career in journalism. William was one of the founding editors of the Washington Free Press, the first alternative newspaper in the U.S. Capitol. Working as a freelance journalist in the U.S., Europe, and South America, William often saw firsthand what the U.S. government was doing all over the world. Then, of course, in the name of saving people from communism, in quotes, among his many books on U.S. foreign policy are Killing Hope, U.S. Military and CIA Interventions Since World War II. Very good book. And another one that comes to mind is Rogue State, A Guide to the World's Only Superpower. In 1999, William received a Project Censored Award for exemplary journalism. Specifically, it was was a story about how in the 80s, the U.S. had given Iraq the material to to develop those chemical and biological weapons we heard so much about. William has been critiquing U.S. foreign policy as a regular columnist for a number of publications. He's appeared on numerous radio and TV shows. His online column, the Anti-Empire Report, can be found at his website, williambloom.org. That's William, B-L-U-M, one word, dot org, where you can also purchase his books. After decades spent telling the truth about what the U.S. government really gets up to, and no doubt sometimes feeling like he's talking to a brick wall, William recently decided to wind things down. So we're very grateful to have him with us today. He's agreed to, to come back into the fray, so to speak. <laughs> Welcome to the show, William. Hi, thank you very much. Well, um, it's, it's Bill, I think, is it? You prefer to be called? You're known as Bill. I'm, um, I'm, I'm okay with either either name. Okay, I'll go with Bill because it's shorter. Alrighty, Bill, it is. Um, well, I was gonna. I mean, there's plenty of specific questions we could ask you, <clears throat> um, because your books are full of uh, very specific details about uh, the crimes, effectively, of what's become known to most people with a with some intelligence as the U.S. Empire. Uh, but I was thinking that I might start with a more general question and a fairly gen- a very, a very general one at, at that. And it's the thought just occur- occurred to me to ask you, what is wrong with our world, in your opinion, today? What's the major problem? I mean, well, I'm assuming the, you think there's something wrong. The violence is what bothers me the most uh, every day. It, it It's a... A punch in my stomach. Uh, it, it very upsets me. Uh, and mm-hmm. who's the most of the violence? Well, in in recent decades, it's uh, our own government. Uh, we uh, we have. Well, I, I've summarized U.S. foreign policy since the end of World War II as follows: uh, In that period, the U.S. has attempted to overthrow more than 50 governments 
we've attempted to, to assassinate more than 50 foreign leaders. We've interfered in the, in the elections in about 30 countries. We have uh, stopped the uh, revolutionary movements in about, in about 20 countries. And it is, we, we lead the world in torture in that period. And there's one more other item in my list I can't think of at the moment. Uh, but that's the summary of our record since 1945. Hmm. Yeah, well, the, the strange thing about that summary is that it is more or less exactly the opposite of what, let's say, the average American or even the average Westerner uh, would say about the U.S. over that uh, 50-year period of the, of the, or since the, you know, the second half of the last century. Now. Yeah, either they wouldn't know about it or... They know what they know about. They rationalize as being uh, f- f- for the good. We right. have no choice. We're fighting uh, evil communists and evil drug dealers and evil terrorists, and so it's all in a good name. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how they would rationalize it. Okay, so. You know, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet kind of thing that, okay, it's unfortunate that some people may have died or whatever, but overall, supposedly the U.S. over the past 70 years or even the past 100 years has been a force for good in the world. That's what people think. And right. the, problem, the problem is your books make it very clear that they are absolutely not or have certainly not been a force for good in the world. They've been a force for death, suffering, and general chaos around the world during that period. Uh, and, and the death and suffering of, of millions of people here. Um, so yeah, that's the, the main problem in attempting to make the average American understand uh, what, what his government has done, the main problem is they have a deep-seated belief in, in the, the goodness of, of, of our intentions. Uh, mm. that, uh, we have... Uh, we have done things which look kind of bad and maybe even uh, uh, did more harm than good. And But they, they, they have this deep-seated belief that we mean well. And as long as mm. a, a person, uh, American or otherwise, believes that the U.S. government means well in its foreign policy, then they're able and willing to rationalize whatever the government actually does. Mm-hmm. They, they for a good cause. Yeah. And that's, that's something which activists in the, in the U.S. should keep in mind. When they're having an argument with some other American about U.S. foreign policy, they should keep in mind that this, that this person probably begins from the basic belief that the U.S. government means well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, uh, there's probably a bit of projection going on there in, in the sense that the average American does mean well and would like to see, would like to think that the, the effect, their effect on the world as a people and... Uh, that, they're, that they're looked upon as being... Well, the, the, but no, what I'm saying is more fundamental in the sense mm-hmm. that the average American, um, you know, 
um, has has good intentions towards other people as a general uh, as a general rule, and they elect these people who, for whatever reason, they think are going to uh, you know embody the same benevolence uh, t- towards the rest of the world. So, what's the difference between the average American and the average American politician? Well, they both have the same, same beliefs. Uh, the, the the person in office uh, knows or believes that he will not remain in office unless he, he continues these same policies. He, otherwise, right. if he doesn't continue these same policies, he'll be called a weak, uh, a weak on communism, a weak mm. on, on terrorism, and mm. all kinds of things. Uh, that they're accused of supporting terror, supporting terrorists, and so on. The they, the electoral system here is very primitive. I think that's the word to use. And mm. these people who run for office and who hold office, uh, when it comes to foreign policy, they almost never step out of that mold I've just described. They mm. might do. They're more likely to do so on a domestic issue, but on foreign policy, no. Mm-hmm. So, I've heard you say in the in, in, elsewhere that um, a definition of democracy for you, a good definition for each person or for anyone, really, because it's quite true, is that uh, democracy is uh, the extent to which someone has an input or an influence on the things that uh, that impact their lives, that the laws that are passed, etc., that impact their lives directly. Um, but in that, by that definition, the U.S. isn't really much of a shining example of democracy. No, I call the U.S. today, and for some time it's been a plutocracy, ruled by the right. rich. Uh, the, as you know, the gap between the rich and the poor in the U.S. is by far the greatest in the world or in history, uh, and that by itself. Uh, makes the statement that we are a democracy very questionable. That That's a basic fallacy with our system, and that has to be dealt with. Uh, some people put it in, in the form of money has to be taken out of politics. And, and there, there are people, even some in Congress, who, 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 who share their view, but they haven't yet found a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, this this def- I mean, by the definition of democracy, the U.S. is not such. You've described it as a plutocracy. Um, the, the the chasm then between the state of affairs in the U.S. and what is the rationale for doing what the U.S. does elsewhere in the world today is done in the name of democracy. But of course, if it's plutocracy, that is what is projected elsewhere. Um, I'd like to get your comment um, on the situation in Greece at the moment. Although this is within Europe and it's, you know, to all purposes, it's an EU affair. It strikes me that the hard line that's been taken in Brussels is a mirror image reflection of the hard line that would be taken by Washington. Yeah, one could view the Greece question as uh, a class conflict. 
the the powers that be in Europe, like Mrs. Merkel, they 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 look they look upon the leaders of of Greece, the recent leaders of Greece. They, they, they look upon them as being uh, striking workers, upstarts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how dare they challenge the authority of of we the bosses? And uh, they they like like all good bosses, they had to teach a lesson to these workers, so that others will not have the same idea. This this what what the the hard line thinking against Greece is a warning to Spain and Italy and Portugal and Ireland and so on. Uh, if you if you act the same way, we, we will crush you financially in the same way. The people will suffer in the same way. That's the lesson. That That is like a domestic labor dispute with the bosses and the workers. Uh, a lesson has to be taught. <clears throat> yeah, it's extremely clear. In If you look at some of the dialogue back and forth between not just the current radical left, in quotes, government in Greece, but the previous one that was, you know, mainstream liberal Greek government. Um, it's astonishing that the conversations the Troika were having with their representatives were all about wage disputes, collective bargaining, right? the source of the mainstay of a national government, the issues of who gets paid, who gets paid how much. This was all coming straight from Brussels. No, no, no. You got to, you got to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, 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 the bosses even uh, are clamping down on on, on pensions. I mean, this is this is, this is normally a a local domestic issue, but now it's 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 highlighted internationally uh, for the for the same mentality, the same capitalist mentality that you have in a at home. Uh, it's very clear in, in that sense. Um, well, the um, I'm not. I'm trying to frame this properly. Um, the crimes that you detail in your book, in your books, and you have been faced into and facing yourself into over the past, I don't know, probably fifty, fifty years or more. Um, <clears throat> It's my impression that looking back on that and looking what's happening today, that these crimes, the crimes of this so-called elite, they're just criminals, obviously, but they style themselves as being the elite, um, that they've got worse in certainly perhaps since 9-11, but over the, as a general rule, over the course of the past 50 years, they've increasingly uh, they've ramped up uh, the, the things that they do, the crimes that they commit as detailed in your books around the world. They, they've continued to do those and at, at, a, uh, at an increasing rate and in a, in a more egregious way over that period of time. And uh, But at the same time, during that time, there's been many more people like yourself who've come out and exposed these crimes. But So I'm just, uh, I was struck by the kind of problem inherent in that in, in the sense of what does that portend uh, for the ability of truth tellers like yourself to contribute to any meaningful change in the world, if, as I see it anyway, I don't know if this is your 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 view as well, but that these these people are getting worse in what they're doing. They're 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 committing more egregious crimes all the time. But I do even a, even as they're being exposed. Yeah, 
I do have faith in education. I think more and more and more people are learning these facts which you've just uh, explained. I think the, the public is getting much more wise. The whole world is getting much more wise to, to what's going on, to what the nature of the game that's being played. And I can only uh, advise people who ask me what they can do. <clears throat> I, I advise them to educate yourself as much as you can and, and as many other people as you can about the real facts of, of, of these, of these uh, historical events. And eventually, I can only hope, eventually, our numbers will reach a certain critical mass and there will be some kind of explosion. I can't predict the exact nature of that explosion, but uh, I can only, uh, I have the faith that it will happen, and I can ask the advice I pass on to people as to what they can do. Uh, I admit it's, it, it, can, it cannot be as inspiring as uh, telling people to uh, grab the, the, pitch, the, the pitchforks and, and the fire and the fires <laughs> and storm the palace, uh, but it's a slow process, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's all I advise people to do. Yeah, it's, it, it occurred to me also that maybe the fact that more people are becoming aware of the real nature of, of the world and the powers that control it, that that may be actually pushing these same powers to act in more kind of... Yeah, right. Um, the, the, more they, the more they're challenged, the more they'll react that way. And of course, now yeah. with the, in this uh, age of information we live in, with the Internet especially, uh, of course, people, many more people are learning much more than before. And and this is... Uh, and, and, and they're protesting. in the... The powers that be are reacting uh, as expected. They, they're, they're not going to sit back and just accept this. And so that's, mm -hmm. that explains Mrs. Merkel, and that explains the American government and uh, other governments. It's, we, we can't be surprised by that. We just have to keep on pushing, keep learning, keep educating other people, and keep pushing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... I suppose it's a silver lining, but there's an idea there that the more desperate they get, the more mistakes they might they might make, and at some point we might get a uh, an event that would really reveal the man behind the curtain. I mean, that's maybe a pipe dream. The more they act that way, the more they'll turn people off, and so the the the, the, the process would be would be multiplied. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, there are EU officials on the record as saying that. To Yanis Varoufakis, who relates this back to the public, um, yeah, we're we're perfectly aware that our economics is uh, junk science. Junk science. It's uh, at least the way we're applying. It's just destructful to Greece. But you don't understand. The reason we're doing this is to break the backs of the Greek people, precisely because I don't think they understand this. But there is a kind of an instinct that oh my God, there's a large population here. Who are discussing and aware of what's actually going on and mm. what we're like, mm -hmm. we need to beat them back. Yeah, um, yeah. That guy, Varoufakis, the former finance minister who who left, he 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 said that uh, talking to these European central powers, uh, that they said, yeah, we know what you're saying, we understand that um, that what you're saying makes sense, but we're going. He said, but they that they said to him, but we're going to crush you anyway. <laughs> 
Yeah, and that that vote on on the fifth, on the fifth was it in Greece? Fifty-two yeah. percent uh, voted in a in a way that the the European powers that be found to be reprehensible, and they 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 reacted to that. This this the the punishments which they have outlined in their latest um, agreement are worse than had been thought of before. And so mm-hmm. they, 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 they are reacting, as you said, uh, when, when they are challenged and, 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 and castigated by, by the mob, they mm. will react in, in, in a tougher manner. Speaking of mobs, Bill, do you, uh, what's your take on what's happening in the U.S. with the whole, I mean, I, I can't, it's not a, it's not race, I, can't, I hesitate to call it race war, but it seems that there's been a lot more of that over the past year or, or so, kind of a the tension tension between uh, kind of blacks and whites in the U.S. and um, for various different on various different uh, pretexts. I mean, do you see that being a problem? I don't think that's so much a a black white thing, but a a cop and a non cop thing. The the cops of America are pretty awful, and mm-hmm. they they it's it's becoming much more apparent. Because of of the video cameras, people people carry around with them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the cops are any worse now than they were twenty or thirty or forty years ago. But the 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 cameras are so uh, omnipresent that mm-hmm. we're seeing things we we would never have seen before, and, and we're forced to believe the stories people tell about about the cops much more than we had to before. So it, it's it's a really an amazing change in in our perspective and in, in our news presentation, and it's it's very good. Mm, yeah, it's very good, and it also ties into what we just said previously that that this uh, preponderance of video cameras among the population uh, uh, holds the potential to expose this uh, the nature of the beast type of thing to so many people and get to that point where um, something if will break. If only we can present to the American public in as concise a manner as with these video cameras, what, what U.S. foreign policy results in abroad. Uh, mm. if we could show videos of the result of our support of Saudi Arabia, for example, in the mm. Middle East, uh, or of Egypt, or of Israel. Uh, yeah. That, that, would, that would help to move people around. Now, the, the the station the, the Russian station RT, which is mm-hmm. shown in, in a number of American cities, does show much more of this than than you find on uh, NBC and ABC, uh, and that's a good thing also. Yeah, speaking of the Middle East, what um, we had the recent uh, entente with uh, Iran, supposedly. Uh, Breakthrough in negotiations, and we're all friends now. Is that really all it's about? Well, you know, I haven't yet. I haven't seen this comment yet. I, I've read a lot about the the uh, pact uh, concerning Iran. I, I've read a lot, and I've yet to see anyone make this comment that uh, when you when, when you get right down to it, the, the thing is completely meaningless because it has it could have meaning only if Iran was really a threat to to have nuclear weapons and a threat 
to invade the U.S. with with, with these nukes to to nuke the the U.S. or Israel. But, of course, Mm. this is the case at all. Iran has known for, for decades that any such attack upon the U.S. or Israel would mean the end of Iran completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, they're not so suicidal as to do that. Not, there has not ever been any danger of Iraq, even if they had nuclear weapons, no danger of them using them against the U.S. or anyone for that matter. So this, this, in that sense, this pact is, it was totally unnecessary. All, all, all the public statements, all the, the fancy meetings in Vienna and all that, it's just, just a big show uh, to show who's boss. Uh, and and uh, but it's, it's Israel who's behind it. They 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 are determined to remain the only nuclear power in the Middle East, and that's the, the reason that they they're so uh, opposed to to the, to the to Iran getting nuclear weapons, uh, and, and 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 the U.S. just is following uh, in that in those footsteps. But but the the, the what what, ha- what happened in Vienna, in in any real sense. It's totally meaningless. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you have any idea or opinion on why then the U.S. is going against what it has been doing for so long, which is take Israel's position on this issue? Going against? Oh, you mean why? Why <laughs> they? They? Why they? 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 They were dealing with Iran at all? You mean? Yeah. Why this change of tank tact? Uh, change of tack and the and the dropping of sanctions, supposedly. Uh, I'm, I can only guess that uh, Obama is w- working on his quote legacy unquote. Uh, right. Ha. Uh-huh. He he may he may he probably knows that it, 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 this wasn't necessary. It's all mm. show. It's a showman, uh, yeah. He probably knows that. I mean, he, he, he uh, and that I'm guessing is the main motivation. Uh, and of course, the U.S. has been getting more and more flack about its policy in the Middle East for years and years, and including its support of Israel. Uh, it finally may have had made a slight dent in 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 the steel. Uh, of U.S. policy, I'm not sure. I mean, this is—I I would have to be able to read the mind of Barack mm, Obama. Sure, sure. Uh, I can only guess that it has to do with the things I just mentioned. But from a practical point of view, there was no need for it. It was just right. some image-serving um, policy. And of, and of course, uh, <clears throat> Netanyahu made hay out of the whole thing. Uh, by you know trumping up this uh, how this is terrible and uh, you yeah, know telling Israelis they're all going to die soon basically which obviously you know supports his position as this hawk in the Israeli government. Yeah, Netanyahu and, and Obama supposedly don't care for each other too much, so that that oh, may yeah. also have played a role. Hmm. Bill, you published, you wrote, sorry, in in your book Rogue State that. The Cold War never really ended. Now, you were writing this in, I think it was first published in 2000. Right. And this is based on what you saw in the 90s. Now, everyone else was saying, oh, yes, the Cold War has ended, it's over. And you said, nope. (laughs) 
I, I, I would ask you to comment. Is, yeah, go on. That question has been answered. We're, 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 we're in now what people call yeah. Cold War Two, but one could easily say is it just the same Cold War. Uh, it never ended. So, so, and it was never, and it which proves that it was never uh, communism per se that mm-hmm. bothered the American power elite. It was the idea of anyone challenging American dominance in the world. I think the bottom line, in my view, about U.S. foreign policy is that if you have to, you want to understand those policies, you have to understand that the U.S. wants to dominate the world, and they've been do, wanting to do this for centuries. Uh, and, and this this explains all kinds of things. And and they they any country which stands in the way of that dominance, like the Soviet Union did, and Russia now does, and China now does, they mm-hmm. are definition enemies to to to, to be thwarted in, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening now. We we call it another Cold War, but it, uh-huh. may, it may become hot. You, you you said centuries there, Bill. Do, do yeah, you think there's we, some kind of original one, design? What one on. one can one can date the beginning of the American Empire from the conquest of the Indians when they reached California. They had no place to go except abroad, and that's that's what they did. And they, they, they. At that time, they announced the the policy of um, what is that term? The, the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, uh, uh, which gave us the right to to Latin America. Uh, yes. Uh, uh-huh. But there's another term I'm, I can't think of. Um, anyhow, we we have. Well, that's those are the, are the, are the, some of the beginning stages, and then it, it reached its uh, another level in the 1890s when we invaded and, and conquered uh, Cuba and, and Guam and, and and some other uh, nations in, in the Pacific. Uh, that was the the more outward, more obvious manifestation of the U.S. empire, uh, and it's been it's been busy. Uh, uh, growing itself ever since. Yeah, it's been, it's just been a non-stop growth process from the beginning. Yeah. But people who want to understand U.S. foreign policy have to keep in mind the, the, these basics. They they can't just look at each event of each day as if it's it has no uh, predecessor. It's all part of an ongoing pattern. Of empire, hmm. and who drives that uh, that empire, that uh, desire to expand empire? Because obviously, you're talking here; it's been it it uh, it, it it includes many, many dozens of administrations of both, you know, Democrat, Republican. I mean, it really doesn't seem to matter who's in 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 the White House. No, uh, this. Matter at all. They, so, they is there somebody behind? Is there someone behind the White House that is driving this? Is there some other? I mean, in 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 modern times, it's the, the corporations, uh, and they and just just to be reelected, you know, the the 
people who are who support the empire's policies have the money, and with that money they can uh, change the outcome of almost any election. And so, mm-hmm. if, 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 if a politician wants to remain in office, he knows very well he cannot uh, undertake a new foreign policy. He cannot uh, castigate the, the imperialists. Uh, and it's, it's the same dilemma faced by any, any American president for, for, for two centuries. Yeah. Was that term you were thinking of for manifest destiny? Oh, manifest destiny, right. That was the term, of course. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, then and then the next expression in sequence was the uh, the American Century, coined by right. the, the founder of, of Time magazine uh, about in the early 1900s, uh, the American Century. Yeah, yeah. We, we have had our eye on, on, on that prize for a long time. Mm. Well, just as a, we're going to let you go soon, but just as a final kind of a closing question, um, how do you see, do you see this continuing on for the next few hundred years, or do you see any change possible to a somewhat better world? Well, every empire comes to an end, so it's easy to say that the American empire will come to an end someday, but the question is, what will end first, the American Empire or, or, or the world? I mean, the U.S. Right. Is, is the main uh, violator of, of the environment, the world environment. You know, the U.S. military is the, the one institution in the world that pollutes more than any other institution uh, in, in many ways. So just for this, forget about the politics, just for the sake of our environment, which is to say the the sake of the future of the world, the the, the American military establishment has to be uh, put to an end. Uh, that's that's that's, that's by itself enough reason to to fight the empire. Mm-hmm. Well, it can't come uh, soon enough, as far as, as far as we're concerned. Uh, yeah, but I, in my lifetime, I'm an old man. <laughs> no, you, but, yeah, well, you never you never know. Things can happen uh, pretty pretty quickly. I don't know. I often think that maybe it might, something else might intercede, you know, in the sense of, um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the big one uh, and concerning earthquakes uh, over on the west coast of the U.S. and stuff. And I'm thinking that maybe some kind of an environmental problem might, uh, could well, possibly... That, that would not be an improvement over what we have now, would it? No, it wouldn't be an improvement, but I, it might, do, might go some way to kind of bring the whole system down, you know? Yeah, Even but... If it's, system down and everything else, including all our lives and our homes. Right. Uh, I'd rather find a... You're looking a, for a peaceful transition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even if it's revolution, uh, uh, not, not, not such a uh, destructive phenomenon uh, as yeah. you're speaking of, but yeah. just an old-fashioned revolution with a certain number of people <laughs> killed, but but uh, the the buildings, at least, remaining in Right. Well, it couldn't, yeah. I mean, having a revolution and people being killed couldn't be any worse than what's going on in the world today anyway, uh, you know, with the U.S. empire at the helm. So, yeah, that's a good option. Yeah, well, 
but it, it, I'm, I'm looking for something uh, better, not not simply not worth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Bill, we know you're. Uh, we don't want to keep you keep you too long. Um, so we'll. Uh, I just want to say thanks a million for taking this time to to talk to us. I mean, you're. You've been on our bookshelf uh, for a long time, and you've really, your work has uh, really shaped and formed our own view of the world and led us on to, to, to do what we're doing. So and I think that's true for many other people. So you're a credit. I don't think this is too much praise to say that you're a credit to humanity, basically. So. <laughs> okay. Thank you and, very much. Uh, and I hope you, uh, I hope you continue on for, for as long as... As long as I can. Okay. As long as you can, as long as it's possible yeah keep on trucking yeah thank you bye bye all right well thank God you bless. Bye-bye. bye-bye that was william bloom um joe's right though you, you can't give him enough praise because uh, his books if you're familiar with them maybe you're not directly familiar with them but if you are reading just articles online that kind of summarize U.S. interventions, say, since World War II, like he has done, chances are high you're reading something that's extracted from his book because uh, particularly Rogue State, I think, has a complete list of all interventions. And I think if you're seeing a list of them online, it's pretty much yeah, taken from the absolutely. book. Absolutely. It's a definitive uh, compendium of American crimes in the past 60, 70 years, and it's a horrible, horrible list that... Uh, it just shows. It just goes to show, uh, in large part, why the world today is in the state that it is in, and it has been largely because of these so-called interventions, uh, U.S. you know benevolent democratic interventions in other countries, which were effectively just overthrowing democratically elected governments and uh, promoting tin pot dictators, brutal dictators, left, right, and center, and supporting them, either putting them in power or supporting them against the will of their of the local people, and often against the will of, well, against the will of a few Americans who, who, who knew about it, but with uh, 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 the rest of the American people at the time, and even today, are, are completely oblivious to what was going on. Mm. Um, so they didn't, they weren't questioned at all. They didn't have an opinion because they didn't know anything. Um... Yeah, and as, and as Bill says, um, it seems that corporation, it's a plutocracy or it's a corporatocracy, whatever you want to call it, but it's these major corporations and the people behind them <clears throat> that are shaping uh, U.S. government policy. And even that's not absolutely true in a sense because uh, the politicians, as many people listening will know, the politicians um, and, and these corporate CEOs, etc., uh, there's a revolving door between politics and, and corporate life in the U.S., so um, there, there's not much to, to, to choose between them, or you couldn't get much, you couldn't really get a piece of paper between them in that sense. Um, so yeah, plutocracy, uh, ruled by the elite, by a corrupt elite who serve their own interests, um, and that's the truth. And what's amazing is that the dominant narrative. For all these decades has been effectively exactly the opposite uh, it gets into almost the big lie supposedly uh, touted by was it Goebbels I think it wasn't Hitler it was Goebbels big mm. lie basically that the, the liar the, the, the bigger the lie that you that you tell the better chances that people will not uh, see through it see through it yeah 
um, people would never imagine that you could be saying one thing and be doing exactly, absolutely exactly the opposite. Uh, mirror image, effectively. The reason we only had a short interview there with uh, Bill Blom was that he's um, well, he's 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 not he's not a spring chicken, I suppose uh, anymore. He's 82 uh, years old, and he's also had some health issues uh, right now. So, um, well, he's doing very well for someone his age and for someone who has uh, faced themselves into. Uh, the reality, the horrible truth of this world and, and the crimes that, that have been committed against the ordinary people of this world for so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you can imagine how many people uh, in a similar situation and many people who, in a similar situation who do uh, look at the same kind of details and stuff who just basically turn away and, and can't stomach it because it's too, it upsets me too much, you know. <clears throat> but for him to be doing it really since uh, the 1960s. Yeah, as the story goes, in 1967, he was working to become a U.S. diplomat, mm. effectively, and he saw the insider view of the Vietnam War, mm. whatever questions he had about it before, when he saw it up close, uh, he was horrified and he quit, yeah. and he became alternative. He had to go independent and help mm-hmm. set up, I mean, this is pre-internet days, so oh, yeah. you've got to set up an actual newspaper then. I think it was a lot harder to do yeah. in 1967. But he, uh, and he he has a website, as Neil was saying earlier on, uh, uh, org, and um, he published on a regular basis, every few weeks he'd publish an anti-empire report, which is basically an article that he had written about what had been going on. And um, But he a few weeks ago, he announced that he was taking a bit of a hiatus because... Uh, with health issues and also because, as he said himself, he was burned out. He said that after more than a dozen years of putting out that report uh, and because U.S. foreign policy keeps repeating itself with the same lies, he too often found himself repeating the same ideas he'd expressed before, mm. often in more or less the same words. And I can fully empathize, <laughs> empathize with that one, you know, um, because it doesn't change. The, the, you look back into history through books like uh, Bill's and uh, you see that what's going on today was has been going on for decades and decades mm-hmm. and decades and um, people have been talking about it and writing about it for all that time so uh, the face has changed the name of the name of the threat or the faces of the so-called threat uh, to the to the wonderful glorious democratic West change but that's just the, that's just a facade. Uh, the same policy is pursued uh, in the sense of creating that threat, supporting it, propping it up, shoving it in Western people's faces to scare them into into supporting U.S. military overt and covert uh, interventions uh, and yeah. the expansion of the empire, which is for the purpose of funneling as much of the world's wealth through the exploitation of people around the world up to the top of the pyramid, which is effectively the small group of Kind of multi, it's, they're, they're front company, like a CAA front company, are these multinational uh, corporations that funnel the, this wealth and these resources up to the top of uh, the pyramid to this elite slash criminal few. And that's their goal. That's their job. That's, uh, that's what they're here to do, and they are determined to do it. So, in other news, it's all the same. 
<laughs> same stuff is happening over and over again. I know. It's uh, We were here reporting it as news. The bills they're writing about a decade after decade is the same thing. <laughs> Do you know what happened this week? Look at last week. Um, well, no, there's been a few things, I suppose, that are worth mentioning, if only for the point of showing that the same thing continues to happen. Um, well, there was, I mean, there was a one-year anniversary of MH17. The plane, passenger plane, Malaysian Airlines that was shot down over eastern Ukraine. Absolutely, undoubtedly, unequivocally by a jet uh, that people saw near the plane before it crashed and burned. Um, yet, there's not a word about that in the Western media, really. They don't, they, I don't think they even mention it. They might mention it in a small article here and there. Conspiracy theories. That crazy Eastern Ukrainian conspiracy theory or something like that, but um, that this is just evidence that they're trying to cover something up, coming up with this uh, outlandish uh, idea when, in fact, everybody knows, quote-unquote, that it was a a book M1 missile launcher from the ground in the possession of these same Eastern Ukrainian rebels. No evidence for it. Uh, but we're having to go on a lot of uh, kind of fairly thin evidence because all of the evidence, the hard evidence was taken away and has been kept in secret. Uh, you'd think that the people in possession of this evidence, i.e. Uh, the Dutch, the British, the Americans, who want to blame Russia and the Eastern Ukrainian rebels would divulge it all because it's such a slam dunk hard evidence. Here you go. Nobody can question it. We'll put it out there. But no, they don't put it out there. They keep it all secret and just throw out allegations with no nothing to back them up, no hard evidence. I mean, the U.S. government supposedly, according to the Russians, had a satellite flying over that area at the exact time. So they have some pretty high def images of what happened to that plane at that time, but they won't reveal it. Is that a very strange behavior? for a country that supposedly has incriminating evidence against its enemy. And it's making the case, it's making the claim that my enemy did this horrible deed. I have hard evidence, but you're not going to see it. Does that not strike anybody as curious or as completely insane or, to put it another way, a complete load of horseshit? But Joe, Putin killed my baby. That's all you need to know. Let's just remember, Putin killed my baby. A dingo... <laughs> Putin ate me, ate my baby. Uh, that was MH17. It's boring, really, because it's so. Things these days are getting more and more boring in the sense of it's a really bad argument. You know how bored you would get with someone who is who is supposedly debating you or arguing with you, and they kept coming at you with really inane, easily uh, falsified. Are easily proved as false arguments. Uh, You would eventually just go, just go away, will you? And I'd love just the Western media just to go away, but unfortunately, this kind of inane, puerile, childish propaganda apparently has finds fertile ground when it lands in the head of 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 many people in the West. They actually believe it. You know, they believe Putin killed my baby. That's all they need. You don't need any evidence. You just need a headline like that, and everybody believes it. Nobody, people don't want to use their brains. Apparently, they're not interested. 
an actual reality. Uh, they want to believe that what their authorities say is the truth. So just say what the truth is, and I will believe you. And also don't, just by the way, don't show me anything that suggests that my authorities might not tell the truth, because then, then I'm really screwed. What am I going to do then? I'm going to have to start thinking, and I might just freak out. So just keep reminding me that my authorities are the good guys, and keep telling me little snippets of truth, so I can digest them and feel good about myself and the country I live in. Anything else, just leave me alone. I don't want to know. <laughs> well, Joe, those pesky Russians chose the anniversary to add a couple of new details. Yeah. Um, they're not really based on the actual investigation because the Russians don't have any access to it. The, they've been locked out of it. The they've been locked out of it. But they, we saw this analysis of, based on photo images of the damaged cockpit, there was a very good analysis done by a Russian team of quote, aviation experts who deduced from that the blast field of whatever hit the plane. Then they worked out it would have been a, a missile mm-hmm. of a certain weight, etc. And from that, they worked back all the way out, and this is coming from RT, that it would have been an Israeli type, mm-hmm. most likely. A python, is that? And, of course, our antenna went up when we saw that because... Right after the event last year, Joe worked out, probably, it would have been the type of jet that was used, the Su-25 the the Russians picked up on a radar. Well, everyone was going, huh, that doesn't make sense because, A, they can't fly at that height. However, there were some of these old Sukhoi jets that were souped up by an Israeli company. Yeah, they weren't souped up in terms of their actual flight capabilities in the sense of uh, the their, their engines were all the, the, the original engines, but there were other people who said that uh, that that kind of a jet, an old Russian Su-25, Sukhoi-25, that can reach that altitude if only for a, a short time and it would be able to fire a missile. So that was kind of put to rest that it couldn't reach that height. Um, but then the problem was that the kind of armaments and the kind of targeting, targeting system on those old jets were are fairly were kind of 70s here, you know. So, um, and the most important thing was that uh, the point Neil is making is that there was an Su-25KM variant called, uh, nicknamed the Scorpion, that was made by uh, a Georgian kind of uh, aircraft manufacturer in in uh, in league with uh, Elbit Systems of Israel, which is an Israeli kind of armaments manufacturer, an aircraft armaments manufacturer, and they basically upgraded the cockpit and put on a new glass cockpit and a heads-up display, you know, so they can see through their visor, basically uh, have a digital readout in the visor. This was this is massively upgraded. It's basically advanced planes, mm. uh, navigation well, their own and, blurb, arm, and arm systems by by 30 years, at least. Their own blurb said it made them NATO compatible. Right, well, that's the thing. That was the additional thing was that it, it allowed this plane, which uh, previously could only carry the other variants, can, can only carry um, Soviet Payloads, weapons. Yeah, non-NATO weapons. This one upgraded to carry NATO weapons. And, of course, um, uh, NATO missiles, etc., um, would be uh, kind of cutting edge, let's say. Uh, U.S. Uh, would be cutting edge missiles. Particularly, I mean, certainly Russia is catching up now, but they've, the, the West has been on the cutting edge of weapons development for, for quite a while. So uh, it would be that kind of missile that we use to 
um, specifically target and hone into the cockpit area of um, of MH17. Uh, so all of that evidence, circumstantially, let's say, or, um, suggests that or backs up the idea that it was a jet, uh, along with the eyewitness testimony, <coughs> um, suggests that it was a jet that shot it down. <clears throat> and as we said many times and said in the articles that were written on it, um, they did this. This is the kind of people we're talking about. We're talking about people who will not really think twice about shooting down a plane full of 200 and, with 298 civilian passengers uh, from most of them, majority of them from Holland, um, uh, in order to make Russia look bad. I mean, when you're playing, when they're willing to play that kind of game, basically, uh, you can imagine the nature of the people that you're talking about. We think nothing about killing 300 innocent civilians. Certainly they've been involved in making decisions that killed many more civilians uh, over over the years. So it's nothing to them. Uh, but they're willing to do that kind of a, uh, that kind of thing, uh, that kind of mass, mass murder, simply to demonize their enemy, to make someone look bad. Um, it's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, somebody in your neighborhood spreading nasty rumors about you to try and make you look bad. Well, at the level of the people that we're talking about here who rule the world, quote-unquote, they kill 300 people to make you look bad. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they'd go and slaughter your next-door neighbor and his whole family and try and pin the blame on you. If you can imagine someone who would do that to try and make you look bad, uh, that's who we're talking about. That's mm-hmm. the people who basically rule over all of us and make decisions and are plotting all of our futures or our collective future were in their hands in theory or they would like to think so but of course not buying into the bullshit and exposing them at every turn uh, goes a long way to putting you outside of their hands let's say certainly in terms of um, your ability to to um, to not follow their dictates and to know uh, start making decisions based on your own intelligence your own awareness uh, rather than looking to authority, because it's very clear at this stage that the established authorities in this world are extremely evil people. So why would you look to evil people for any kind of guidance? Uh, you shouldn't, because the guidance they'll give you will screw you over, basically. They will exploit you and abuse you and very often, in many cases, kill you for their own in their own interest. So um, certainly they're not people to be looked to for anything other than uh, evidence uh, of who they are and what they are and why you should stay well away from them and everything they preach and everything they promote. Something they're preaching this week in Russia Hate Week is the unwillingness on the Russian side for setting up an international, uh, not an investigation into what happened to MH17. The Russians want that and they're getting stonewalled into an actual crash investigation. What they want, though, is the West wants is uh, to begin criminal proceedings. So (laughs) the Russians are saying, no, we can't jump to that yet. And their negative response has been portrayed this week as, oh, they put some to hide. You see, you see. But the Russians said, no, no. They they explain in, in an actual diplomatic statement the reason we don't want to go to prosecutions yet is because clearly... We have already been found guilty, Russian officials, in trial by media, and this is a political move. And also you haven't presented all the evidence. You know, they're not going to be a party to some kind of a criminal investigation when they're not allowed to see the evidence, you know. 
um, or, or if they have reason to think the evidence is, is being withheld or it will be a one-sided uh, criminal prosecution, which it absolutely will because it's been clear from the very beginning what the whole point of this is is to find Russia guilty in the eyes of the quote-unquote international community, which is America and Europe. Uh, screw the rest of the world. Uh, it's a show trial. It's classic Soviet stuff. Huh. All the stuff that That's we said the show. Soviets did. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how Soviet the West has become? Yeah, and it's... Uh, and it's totalitarian. And people are talking about it quite openly. In other venues, let's say, in other spheres, obviously I'm thinking here about Greece. Mm. I mean... People left, right, doesn't matter what their background is, are kind of going, oh, this is a bit harsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that's an example of what we're talking about with Bill there, that they, these people are desperate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they're increasingly desperate. And when, in the past, maybe when someone like the Syriza Party would come along and they would, um, you know, start promoting and demanding rights for ordinary people in the street, the EU would have dealt with that in a more quiet, more subtle kind of way. And they may not have even, you know, had such a bad reaction to it. You know, they may have went, okay, let's cut a deal here. But, I mean, the fact that they couldn't help themselves but uh, from coming out and, and effectively showing the whole world what a bunch of psychos they were in terms of, it, and that it was pure, it was, I mean, most people who watched it realized that this was revenge. I mean, there was that hashtag on Twitter about um, this is a coup mm-hmm. and that this was revenge. This was pure revenge. Nothing about uh, this wasn't about the the economics of it or or, or uh, what was good for the German people or the Greek people. This was about the powers that be uh, becoming enraged at the people asserting themselves. When, as far as the powers that be are concerned, they have spent so long in creating this uh, environment where they stand. Uh, on uh, unopposed by anyone and they dictate what happens so for someone to stand up and say excuse me uh, I don't agree um, it enrages them and that display of rage uh, shocked a lot of people and I think that's despite what I know Bill prefer, would prefer a, a nice peaceful transition into a, a utopia I think our best bet at this point uh, in terms of more people waking up is that the, this criminal elite in the world uh, are pushed into situations like that where they drop the mask, where they can't help themselves yeah, but it's, it's, flail out and lash out at anyone that yeah. opposes them. I hope it, that opposition or that doesn't sound too sadistic, but we kind of do need the elite to be themselves, to go go mad, go, go postal. Yeah. Because there's no chance of anybody be, uh, believing yeah. uh, what we would say or anybody else would say about, look, here's the evidence that these people are not what they present themselves to be because people will default to believing uh, what they hear these people say. And these people obviously lie, <clears throat> talk about democracy and freedom, and they you know, watch baseball games and talk about baseball and talk about sports and stuff and joke with their, with their constituents and have a bit of fun, they go on holidays, it seems like such normal people. So people are always going to, ordinary people are always going to buy the <coughs> the bullshit, the, that lie, <coughs> rather than anything, rather than looking behind and seeing, having to face that kind of a cognitive dissonance of what these people look like and what they've actually done. So the only way, the only chance for people to really uh, break that illusion, break that spell, is for these criminal elite to show 
themselves for what they are mm-hmm. in their actions. And then people will, there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. People will freak out and they won't know what to do because their idols will have fallen. They'll have no, no uh, benevolent leadership mm-hmm. anymore. And I don't know what will happen then if that happens, but uh, that's our best bet. Yeah, these people, these, these criminal elite have to expose themselves because that's the only way a lot of people are going to get uh, what's really going on. Amen. And here endeth the sermon. Um, yeah. So on, yeah, and on the Iran thing, I agree with, I agree with Bill. Yeah. Obama might be looking for some kind of, possibly he's looking for his, uh, looking towards his legacy. See, I achieved peace with Iran. Mm. Um, but I also wanted this, this has been going on for quite a long time, these negotiations with, with Iran. Uh, officially, oh, the, the, the recent one, the recent set one. of it, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was warmongering up until 2007. We're going to bomb Iran, and those looked like there was saber rattling. I was thinking of the sanctions; they began 2000. Yeah, no, but the the peace portraits oh, yeah. have been going on for a few years now, and um, I had the idea that maybe it was with uh, with an eye to Russia, a resurgent Russia, and these people actually realizing that, okay, listen, it's better if we make friends with Iran than keep them as an enemy because as an enemy, they're going to more easily fall into the uh, the orbit of Russia and its, plan, its plans for uh, uh, the world, <laughs> its plans to take over the world. You know, the BRICS and, you know, the, yeah. basically uh, and your Eurasian uh, economic area, Iran would fit into that and Iran has a lot of... Uh, uh, resources and oil and gas. So I thought that there might have been actually some real politic going on with these peace talks in Iran that the U.S. was saying, listen, mm, the uh, threats and the sanctions aren't working anymore. It's, there's a new um, a new context here that we have to consider this uh, situation with Iran in, and uh, it's better if we try and get something out of it and get something from them and you know, lock them into an agreement with us, let's say, lock them into uh, being... Uh, partners to some extent with us to keep them away from Russia. Uh, it's possible. But it all comes in the, it all has to be considered in the context of the very likely uh, situation or the extreme likelihood that Iran already has a nuclear weapon or has nuclear weapons. Mm. It was never about news. How do you, how do you, <laughs> it was, how do you justify all of this? It's all, I mean, it's, that's it's, all people have heard. Iran's going to get a nuke. Yeah, Stop yeah. Iran getting nukes. Iran has had a nuke for, nuke, nuclear weapons for several years, maybe 10 years. Uh-huh. And this uh, is an example of the mendacity of these people, of the, just, I mean, it's all a massive show. You cannot take one thing they say at face value. Even Netanyahu, in the recent speech he gave to the press, where he castigates this as a catastrophic decision for the region, yeah, yeah. He didn't mention the word nuclear once. And none of them have. All the reports we're hearing now about, oh, sanctions are lifted, mm-hmm. $100 billion worth of investment in Iran, uh, another $100 billion worth of oil. They've already started shipping and making, yeah. signing contracts up the wazoo. With China? No, with the EU. They're, they're, they're actually Iran. getting Iran. Yeah. yeah, they're also shipping... It's the business, first tanker. It's business time because it was always business time. The first tanker of Iranian oil left the Persian Gulf the other day after the uh, on on its way to to China. Okay. So there's a lot of geopolitical stuff going on here. Um, but 
there's one thing BB actually said that was true, I think, uh, but it was 20 years ago. And I think that was the only time. He made one mistake 20 years ago. We got to forgive him. He told the truth. And it was in the UN. And he looked strangely the same, which means that... Kind of greenish. Well, yeah, but he, he looked, between then and his recent uh, talks at the UN, mm-hmm. 20 years later, about the same topic, Iran's nukes, um, he almost hasn't aged, which makes me wonder about what, what he's on, you know, what's fueling this person, you know. It might be the blood of Palestinian children, but we never know. Anyway, um, the thing is... What did he say that was true 20 years ago? 20 years ago, he was at the UN saying, Iran is going to develop a nuclear we- nuclear weapon very soon, within the next year. 20 years ago, he was saying this. Uh-huh. 20 years ago, that was true. And not long after that, Iran did. Um... So this is uh, one big sham, and it's got nothing to do with nukes. Um, if anything, this peace deal is an acknowledgement of the new reality, that yeah. Iran is now a nuclear power also. That's why Iran has never been invaded, why Iran mm-hmm. has not been bombed. Uh, that's the only reason. Despite being as well, surrounded by U.S. prices. And the Israelis. You don't think the Israelis would have cobbled some pretext together by now? Oh, Surely they did. They in 1982, <coughs> they sent jets into Iraq and yeah. blasted a developing nuclear plant right but Iran <coughs> Iran has these uh, has these nukes most likely and um, so this whole we think from former Soviet arsenals right I got through to them right and this whole uh, that's why they haven't been invaded or bombed because as uh, Bill Blum, say, Blum says in, some, in one of his books um, uh, the only reason that um, countries aren't invaded by the US and bombed by the US is is that they have a um, an ability to fire back an ability to defend themselves a reasonable ability to defend themselves uh, if you can't defend yourself the US attacks if you can't defend yourself and you can make it uh, painful enough um, for the attacker the US then they'll they'll always think twice so they haven't invaded Iran because of this uh, their nuclear capability um, but it hasn't been announced publicly by the Iranians either. Uh, And I think that's kind of what their talks are about, maybe. Um, Because Israel wants this to continue to keep... I mean, they don't want this to spread. I think it's a big secret. They don't want this to spread around to other countries in the Middle East because they'll all then start to say, well, why can't we have them as well? Everybody wants nukes. Israel's like, okay, listen, Iran has a nuke. Okay, let's tell anybody. Nobody say a word about this. But pretend they don't. Pretend that we're the only ones still with uh, a nu- nuclear capability in the Middle East. And that way we'll stop the contagion spreading. We can remain top dog. Um, and we'll just keep threatening them with annihilation. Mm-hmm. But what we're threatening with annihilation over is do not tell anybody that you have a nuclear weapon. So Israel's bluff has been called. Israel's upset. Right. And the British Foreign Secretary this week more or less spelled it out and he said something like um, Israel can complain all they want but this mm. is the new reality. Yeah. Something that they would never have been ballsy enough to say before I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway what else has been going on? There's not much. Uh, it's all quiet in the western front. It's not quiet in eastern Ukraine it's Pretty 
insane there at the moment. So you've got this ceasefire that never really ended because the Kiev junta mm-hmm. never really stopped lobbing missiles. But they did increase recently the number of attacks on civilians in Donetsk and eastern parts of Ukraine. Um, but there's still a tight rein on on the rebels there. So mm-hmm. there has not been any kind of massive push or retaliatory push from mm-hmm. them. But on the other side of Ukraine, in the West, um, there is a strong chance anytime soon of there being a coup within the coup because uh, we've now got people inside the Azov battalions and other of these right-wing fighters who are basically the right sector, the extreme right in the west of Ukraine, who are really antsy and are, we, we don't know how much clout or ability they do have to actually overthrow the regime the U.S. put in. But uh, Kiev is now in the middle of two fronts, Mm -hmm. east and west. Well, that's what happens when you you fire up a bunch of right-wing nut jobs to do a job for you, which was overthrow Yanukovych last year and and bring Ukraine into the the orbit of the west. Uh, You can't just drop them afterwards, you know? When you raise these nut job battalions, uh, you have a hard job getting rid of them afterwards. <clears throat> and it's, that's what you're, you're talking about. These people are, are demanding uh, more power that they were supposedly promised, uh, more say, more influence. And, and they, uh, yeah, the, the, there was that uh, show, uh, it was a show uh, in, in the parliament, you know, where basically they're fighting now with, uh, with Poroshenko um, because I think partly they're, they're, they're using the nationalist card, the nationalism card, uh, where they see clearly, uh, which it isn't hard to see, that Ukraine has been completely subverted and taken over by the US. I mean, to the point that, uh, you know, some a non-Ukrainian, the former uh, prime minister or president of uh, Georgia, Sashkavili, uh, Sashkavili, uh, the spittleflect. You can't even say his name. You have to spit to say his name. Uh, <laughs> he's just this little tin pot dictator, psycho guy uh, who is who is wanted in Georgia now for for fraud and murder, I think. Uh, and the U.S. basically t- said, "Listen, put him in as your governor of Odessa, and we'll pay his salary and all of his staff." And the U.S. is paying the staff and the salary of this non-Ukrainian who was suddenly given. Uh, He's Georgian, suddenly given a Ukrainian citizenship by order of the U.S. Give that guy citizenship, make him the governor of Odessa, and we're going to pay his salary and all his staff because we want him in there. Uh, so there's that, and there's the fact that there was, it was revealed that um, the Kiev government is taking calls directly from, uh, I can't remember the name of the senator, but there's a senator in the U.S. who uh, uh, revealed that he was calling the government on a daily basis and saying, uh, telling them what to do, basically. And this is just a senator. This isn't Obama or anybody, because that's below Obama, supposedly. Just get some senator to run Ukraine now. Uh, tell them what to do on a daily basis in terms of passing various laws, what to do here, there, militarily, etc. Uh, so when this came to light, obviously, this angers these nationalists, right? Because, well, it's Ukraine's sovereignty just being totally sold down the toilet, sold down the, the river, you know? Um, 
so that's what's working these guys up as well. You know, they're using that to try and you know work the people if you train up into. Yeah, they could have another. I wouldn't be surprised if there's another revolution, you know, uh, so-called revolution down the line and take focus off uh, Eastern Ukraine. You'd have a, a Western Ukrainian uh, rebellion uh, and the whole thing will just fall apart and the U.S. will walk away probably, you know, or wait until it's all over and then install a new government and start again. So, yeah, the whole thing's ridiculous. It's just chaos. It's it's deliberately so sown chaos uh, for no other reason, largely other than the chaos itself, although I note that um, there was recent contracts to uh, Ukrainian oil, exploration for oil given to, I can't remember the name, but an American oil company. Um, so that's what's going on. It's just madness, pure madness. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff when you're looking at what's going on in the world that you can just say that's the reason for that, why that is happening is because madness, insanity at the highest level, complete, as far as ordinary humans are concerned, uh, this is insanity. These people are clinically insane mm-hmm. in, in terms of their choices to do these things because no normal person would do it. But for these other people, it's just, well, when you get people who get off on chaos and murder and violence, that's going to look like insanity to a normal person. But you're forgetting that they're insane. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. On the Greg's with Joe... What's uh, what's the latest here? We had this amazing, it seemed amazing anyway, when we first read it, development, with, development where the IMF steps into the issue and says, you know what, none of this can go ahead. You can't impose these austerity measures on Greece without giving them debt relief. In effect, writing off the debt. They even suggested that Berlin, or the center, the European Central Bank, ought to transfer large sums of money to Greece to help them out. I mean, this is the IMF that we've known for 50 years has been the arbiter of such structural adjustments and austerity measures. Stepping in and playing the good guy, what the hell's going on here? Well, the IMF enjoys the, the ability or the position of being international, right? It's an international monetary fund. Its bets are hedged uh, around the world. Uh, the EU, this was more up close and personal for the EU, you know, um, and like we discussed with Bill there, this was um, there was a lot of vengeance, uh, vengeance and uh, yeah, fury basically at um, at a country, Greece, the European Central Powers had decided, you know, long ago was ours, basically. You know, you, you you play a game here and that's it and you're locked in and it appeared that Greece was locked in and then to turn around at the 11th hour type thing and um, and try and upset the apple cart really, really annoyed them. And of course, uh, most of Greece's so-called debt, i.e. the money that uh, uh, certain people are had planned to extract from Greece, also known as its debt, or a steal from Greece, also known as its debt, uh, most of that was... Um, most of those people were Germans. Uh, uh, the German economy and German um, bankers, uh, basically Europeans who plan to get the most out of Greece and now those with uh, the Syriza party and Cyprus and stuff, there was um, a threat to them, to their payday basically. So um, I think 
uh, it can be explained by the exposure. It's not really a good word, but the exposure that Germany had and European Central Powers had on Greece compared to the IMF. The IMF, had, I think, had loaned them 1.3 billion or something. Uh, but mm-hmm. the rest of the so-called debt, uh, more than 300 billion, um, was owed back to the EU Central Powers, essentially. Um, so they were the... Their fury was in direct relation to the amount of money they stood to lose or not win um, from Greece upsetting the apple cart and going its own way effectively. And, you know, when you have people who are, have, are, are infected or ill or sick with this, uh, with greed effectively, it's an illness for them, uh, you try and take that wealth away or cut off their feeding and they get very annoyed. In the game of, of brinksmanship and bluff in the weeks and, and recent days surrounding uh, the standoff, between Athens and Brussels. Um, it does seem, however, that something that was initially suggested with bluff is not, because they're still talking about it. It seems that the Germans are pretty serious about a temporary Brexit. So mm. Greece would leave the Eurozone for a period of however many years. Uh, is there a possibility here that... Um, they actually think that's for the best or is this bl- a bluff again because I can't imagine that in, in terms of keeping what is ours how do you keep that mentality at the same time as saying well here these people are a problem for us therefore go away you're not in the club anymore mm-hmm. well when I say keeping what is ours it's uh, it's basically profiting from from the suffering or from the from the energies of the of the Greek people, like as all uh, oligarchs do, and um, the Germans had no problem with, or, or were able to float the idea of Greece leaving. Uh, you could say partly. I mean, to some for some people, it, it was a, it was a threat, it was a bluff essentially, that this was the worst case scenario, and we're happy to let you go because you had to. The, in, in playing this poker game, effectively, the, the Germans had to look, appear as if they were willing to go. Not only were they, were they willing to go to the worst case scenario for Greece, which was a Grexit, but they were happy about it. You know what I mean? That's fine, you leave, I don't care. Uh, to some extent, that could have been a bluff. I think it, to some extent it was a bluff, but at the same time, if Greece, Greece leaves the, uh, um, the Eurozone, it, that doesn't automatically catapult it into the, the South China Sea. You know, it's still uh, on the borders with several EU Eurozone nations. Uh, there's long-established trade, economic, and ties. economic ties between all those. You can't just cut those without any pain. And they would continue, have to continue to do business with the EU, but now on very unfavorable terms with a destroyed Greek economy and a different currency, they would be able to exploit them and uh, you know, extract their vengeance in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Basically, they were going to get revenge no matter what. Mm-hmm. We're going to get revenge by imposing these really harsh measures on you, or you can leave and then we'll impose them. So the current answer of people saying, well, why don't they just do the obvious? Just leave the Eurozone, leave the EU, give them the two fingers. But the answer to that is, while the new Greek leadership may like to do that, 
it's not as simple as just doing it. Mm-mm. It's enormous pain in the short term. Yeah. I mean, this is it's a very difficult situation. Even Varoufakis, who everybody is saying a wonderful Varoufakis, and he seems to be a, a fairly level-headed guy as, as far as it goes. Um, he himself said that um, that while he didn't agree with Cyprus's decision to, to, to go with the austerity measures, he understood why he did it. He understood the very difficult situation he was in, and it was a very difficult situation. It's only not difficult if you're a psychopath and you don't have any problem, you don't have any uh, conscience or empathy or concern people. If you're not a psychopath and you actually care to some extent about the welfare of the people, if you're genuine in that sense, as I think Marie Cyprus was, um, it's a very, very difficult situation. Because the choice, you're, you're being said, you make the choice and it's going to affect 10 million people. <clears throat> hmm. Now you decide, have a good think about it. And I'm assuming you want what's best for the Greek people. You don't want them to suffer. Go away and make your decision. Uh, you know, instead of, for, instead of people <clears throat> just sitting there you know, calling him a, calling Cyprus a traitor and he's evil and blah, blah, blah. Put yourself in his position. Really put yourself in his position and think about what you would do under that kind of pressure and assuming you actually cared for the Greek people and realizing that you're locked into a system where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Everybody can relate to that situation where you feel uh, that way, where you've been put in that position or you've put yourself in that position for whatever reason. It's not pleasant and it's not easy to make a good decision. And you realize that no matter what decision you make, somebody a lot, you know, can split 50-50, you're going to get an awful lot of crap from 50% of the population uh, and probably not be much liked by the other 50%, no matter what you do. People, people have been astonished, um, maybe less so now because it's been talked about for several months. But when it first came out, people were astonished with this suggestion from the center, EU authorities, that... Uh, Greece would be asked to leave the Eurozone. But actually, that wasn't the first time they issued that threat. Two years ago when the Cyprus, Cyprus basically went bankrupt, same deal via its banks, which were now foreign-owned. They had zombie banks, debt transferred to Cypriot people. EU says, okay, well, to recapitalize the zombie banks, we're just going to steal the money from the people, the ordinary people who deposit the money in the bank account. They just talk the money yeah, a bail directly. In. <clears throat> a bail-in, basically. A bail-in. Well, they um, confiscate people's savings accounts and give them to the central bank as, as liquidity, and then the central bank has to pay that off to the central EU powers. So so well, to, to the private investors. Or private investors. Uh, people are one people and the same, effectively. People made, yes, they are now the same. People make a killing off that. But... I wonder at the time, how in the hell did Cyprus agree to that? And uh, I've since seen an interview with uh, a Cypriot. He's now an MP. I think he was in government at the time. He said, we had a gun to our head. We were told, you don't go along with this, you're out of the Eurozone. And that would have been a death knell for us. It's nobody's fault. You can't go around blaming politicians from these countries because, okay, you can blame them to a certain extent because of their naivety and not having the foresight to realize that this whole EU project was designed to effectively make make 550 million people in the EU into wage slaves, basically, and, you know, not much wages at that to increasingly turn the screws on. And that's what was the project uh, all along and the powers that be that have that have come into power over the years of the EU uh, have have increasingly come on board with that plan to the point that we see today and it was exposed for everyone to see with the Greece situation as that is what their their agenda is. So um Yeah, what was the question? 
<laughs> There's no question, but you're going to say you, we can't really blame the local. We can't blame legislators. The local legislators, except maybe for naivety and not seeing the extent of the psychopathology amongst these powers and the way they've been massively corrupted. Uh, if you want to blame someone, blame those people, those psychopaths in power who are doing this, who are putting countries in this position where they're able to hold a gun to their heads and say, do it or else. Yeah. I mean, you got to direct your anger at the right people because, you know, uh, using scapegoats and stuff only helps the real evildoers. Um, but yeah, Greece has been sold down, down the river, basically. And I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's only, what, two weeks? And already there's news that international, multinational companies like uh, there's one uh, French company called Vinci that uh, makes roads and airports and all that kind of stuff. It's a construction company. Um, and they've uh, bought, they've basically already expressed their interest in buying up 41, any number or all of Greece's 41 airports. You know, this is privatization. This, is the, this was demanded by the EU, sell off all of your state assets. Yeah. And then there's another uh, kind of a shipping and port company called Maersk. Uh, that is now lobbying for uh, purchasing of Greek ports. And this is just going to continue on until everything in Greece is going to be, like in most of the rest of the EU, yeah. particularly in the UK, most of state assets, most uh, things like roads, ports, airports, um, all that kind of stuff, all other services, electricity, you know, the post service. It's, it's the shock it's, doctrine on steroids. It's all being, it will all be sold off. Yeah. Uh, two private individuals who, and obviously private companies, are a worse deal than government-regulated uh, services because a government officially doesn't have such a strong interest in turning a massive profit on those countries, on those company, on those services and industries, than a private uh, corporation does. The private corporations want to immediately buy the company uh, from the government, cut fifty uh, percent of the staff and then cut their wages, the rest, uh, the other 50%, cut their wages by 50%, uh, knock down, close down lots of uh, you know, buildings, <coughs> sell them off, <coughs> basically create a crappier service for the people than, was, uh, than it was under, under the government, and rake in the profits. So the people suffer, the people get a, cropper, uh, a crappier service, and the people working for that company now, and, and in many cases, there's there's hundreds of thousands or millions of people working for those state and state formerly public uh, uh, service industry industries, um, and that's where Greece is going, and it's going to continue. And it's, but that's in a certain not sense, just Greece. But in a certain sense, they're just coming in line with the rest of Europe because Greece has held out yes, against that for a long difference. time. Yeah. And they're coming in line with the rest of Europe. But, of course, there's the, the poorer countries in Europe, poorer with, I basically, countries with uh, <clears throat> not so many resources and not maybe not so favoured, uh, but particularly ones with smaller populations, uh, tend to get the, the worse end of the stick. Um, and that's to be expected in the EU as part of the EU project, you know. Um so it was a good. It was good. It was good while it lasted, you know. Um, the the example that Greece gave, and, and like I've said before on many occasions, these things <clears throat> people shouldn't get too excited about. Oh, this is this is the moment. This is when 
the little guy is going to stand up to the big guy and and you know knock his glasses off and we're quick gonna, everybody to the Bastille. We're gonna we're gonna win. You know, let's have a revolution. It's all going to be over. No, th- these things come along not for the underdog to win, but for the underdog to at least have uh, it in him or her to throw a good uh, throw a few good punches and expose you know uh, outrage. Uh, the big guy, the powerful guy, that you would even dare to defy me and then provoke him to expose his true nature. That's what's beneficial in all these things. And this is kind of what we were saying with uh, Bill, Bill Bloom, that this is what we, this is our, our really the only hope we have, which is to, to have more examples from this powerful elite of their true nature so that more people can realize it and say, oh my God, we're not in Kansas anymore. Indeed. And then see what happens. Who knows what happens after that. But that's as good as it's going to get. Nobody's going to come along and save everybody and take over the world and usher us all into some kind of uh, Valhalla, you know, utopia or whatever. Um, I don't think that's what this planet is designed for. Um, that's not its destiny. But there's lots of opportunity to learn a lot of important things along the way. And that's one of them, which is the nature of the powers that control this world. And the more opportunities we're given, ordinary people are given to see that, the better. Because that's the main point, is to realize the way you thought they were. Bill suggested things might build up to a critical mass and there would be, he used the term an explosion. Um, well, the explosion Joe and I had in our head was probably a little different to the, <laughs> the explosion he was thinking of. But just uh, I'm using that as a way to deviate into this funny headline. I find it funny. I think it's just it, it also reveals the pathology if you think about it. So there's a massive asteroid passing today or tomorrow. I'm not sure. Eh, safe distance, so they say, two million miles away. But somebody somewhere, probably NASA, has decided that they know what the asteroid is made of, platinum, and they put a nominal value on it. The asteroid is worth $5.4 trillion. Mm. <laughs> and that was it. That was the headline. And it's going around. You should probably look it up. And I'm thinking to myself... What, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> There's an asteroid passing by and you're putting a figure on it and suggesting something. that it's valuable enough to what, go and mine it? Well, yeah, mm. they are serious about well, trying to land on it and mine asteroids. Well, it's, perfect. it's a perfect example of, of the nature of this world, you know? I mean, if somebody from space was looking and saw that that's what the, one of the main concerns about uh, of the people of this planet or the powers that rule this planet was when they looked at a space rock that could one of which could potentially threaten all life on earth was the first thing was how much money can we make from it <laughs> that's that's uh, just a perfect example of of what's wrong with this world and why this world is not going anywhere good uh, fast but my question is if that asteroid land on earth would that be public money or would it be quickly prioritized because, I mean, 5.3 trillion would be good for, that's, you know, a few grand at least. Uh, uh, space programs are privatized in the U.S. now. I mean, the guy who's, I can't remember his name, but there's a private, I mean, private companies 
understanding rockets up. So I'm afraid it would be a private investor. Mm. What, what if it landed? If it landed, who hmm. <laughs> gets to it first? All right, well then. Well then, that's fair enough. I'll get my flag. It'd be the asteroid rush. Yeah. Everyday hunting, yeah. All the ones who were left alive. Anyway, I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks, but not before we have... Uh, we missed it last week, but so this week we're desperately in need of a pop culture roundup from um, you-know-who. Um, Old Man Relic, take it away. Here he is. nestled on the blizzard-strewn shores of Upper Lake Canada, where everything is blindingly white as far as my squinty eyes can see. And, as you might have suspected, I've been trolling the interlink this week for all the latest celebrity gossip coming out of Tinseltown. In our first story... Headline Politics is reporting that tough guy actor Sylvester Stallone has given an interview at the 700 Club where he admitted to Minister Pat Robertson that Sylvester has surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stallone goes on to say that his first big movie hit, Rocky, contains a strong allegory to the life of Jesus, noting the famous biblical passage where the Messiah himself works out by punching a large side of refrigerated beef. Now, don't quote me, but I believe it's from one of the lesser-known books of the Bible, the Gospel of Mr. T. But I pity the fool. The heavily emusculated Rambo actor even hinted that his next all-star ultraviolet movie ensemble cast will include a cameo from our dear Lord and Savior, with the film being tentatively titled Expendables 4, The Resurrection. And speaking of muscular beefcakes, the young Patrick Schwarzenegger son of steroid-inflamed Terminator star Arnold Schwarzenegger, is currently in a romantic relationship with a, a young lady known as Miley Cyrus, who is the daughter of country music-singing, mullet-wearing, one-hit wonder Billy Ray Cyrus, whose cringingly catchy country pop song, Achy Breaky Heart, is still stuck in my head after 23 years. Damn you! God damn you all to hell! My feelings exactly, Billy Ray. Anyways, where was I? Oh, yes. Entertainment Tonight is reporting that fans of the Hannah Montana singer have expressed their outrage on Twitter last month after her boyfriend, the younger kindergarten cop, 
was photographed hugging an unfamiliar bikini-clad woman in Cabo San Lucas over spring break. Some of these tweets from her borderline psychotic fan base apparently included several explicit death threats directed towards Coden the Barbarian Jr. that he would dare cheat on poor Miss Cyrus, who I suspect from her public persona, must have given the young Schwarzenegger a severe tongue-lashing when she heard about his true lies. In the end, I'm happy to report that the young celebrity couple is now back together again, having just tweeted some topless photos from their recent vacation in Hawaii that for some reason the interweb has warned me is very NSFW. Now, I can only guess that this unusual acronym must stand for Never Shout at Fleeing Walruses, lest they turn around and impale you with their razor-sharp, white, protruding mouth bones. It's sound advice, in my opinion. And lastly... According to Ross Story, in the previous summer, rock and roll legend in his own mind, gun-loving conservative wingnut Mr. Ted Nugent found himself in hot water again when he criticized a group of Native American protesters at one of his concerts in South Dakota. Mr. Nugent was quoted as saying that the group of protesters was a, a bunch of stinky-ass, unclean dipshits who don't actually qualify as people. Mr. Nugent is an ideal poster boy for the intolerant, backwards, xenophobic, narrow-minded conglomerate known as the Tea Party. There were also some satirical reports that Mr. Nugent even went on to suggest that white people settled America first and that all the natives should be rounded up and shipped back to where they came from. Now, I've seen a lot of stupid people in my years, but there's regular stupid and then there's like colossal stupid, like the Mount Everest of stupid. Well, picture Mr. Wango Tango is boldly reaching the summit of this particular mountain and planting a confederate flag up there. A virtual one-hit wonder, Ted Nugent is best known for his late 70s hard rock song, Cat Scratch Fever, otherwise known in veterinarian lingo as toxoplasmosis. Some of the symptoms of toxoplasmosis include encephalitis, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, and Schizophrenia, which to me pretty much sums up Ted Nugent's entire career. What a maroon! <laughs> what an ignoramus! <laughs> what a tararagoondie! That's all for this week, kids. And as usual, it's Relic here, with some dry spruce wood burning in the fireplace. Signing off for this week and saying, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. All right. Thanks, that Relic. We uh, will be back 
next week, folks, with uh, another show. I just wanted to say thank you again to Bill Bloom. Um, it was a pleasure having him on the show. Um, so thanks for listening and thanks for chatting. We'll see you again next week. Same time, same, same place. place.